Welcome to Athens Happens. I'm Emily Zeiler, Digital Managing Editor at The New Political. And I'm Bo Kuhn, Senior Digital Producer. Athens Happens is a podcast brought to you by The New Political, a student publication dedicated to explaining the nuances of Ohio University, Athens, and state politics. You can find new episodes on Monday at thenewpolitical.com or wherever else podcasts can be downloaded. In this episode, we sit down with Dana Crane, a local political figure and activist who has run for public office both in 2019 and the 2021 election, about his history at Athens and his outlook on Athens politics in general. Hi, Damon. How are you? Good, Bo. How are you doing? I'm doing good today. Excellent. Um, so what made you decide to run for government in Athens? Well, um, so about uh, for about 23 years before I ran for mayor in 2019, um, I had been doing community, or- community organizing work basically since I was uh, in high school. And, um, you know, that's kind of been my life's work. And I think anybody who's focused on social justice issues just couldn't look at the way our city is run and not be appalled by it. Um, So, you know, there were several areas in particular that concerned me that I've focused on in my campaigns. But, you know, at its most basic, it was just um, a matter of being outraged at how our city's run. Uh, any particular uh, examples of that? Yeah, um, I mean, and I can go into any of these in greater detail if you like, but um, certainly rental housing safety regulation, um, certainly racial equity, uh, police accountability, certainly civil liberties and students' rights, um, affordable housing, um, the lack of transparency and, frankly, honesty in city government, as well as a lack of democracy and city government, whether you're talking about uh, the low level of voter turnout or the number of non-competitive quote-unquote elections we have. Um, And uh, let's see, did I miss anything? Um, You know, those were kind of the the main points. Um, And I would say also a failure of our 100% Democrat-controlled city government to oppose Republican power at either the state, national, or local level. Um, you know, those were all things I was upset by. Okay. Um, how long have you lived in Athens? Because you were a student at Ohio University, correct? I was, yeah. Okay. So um, I actually first moved here for an organizing project uh, shortly before I turned 20 in the summer of 1999. Um, and that was actually a a project where I had founded a group that educated um, area public high school students on their little known First Amendment rights to produce their own print media distributed at school without having to give school officials editorial control. Um, Legally, students have had the right to do that since the late 60s, but their school officials don't tend to tell them about it. So (laughs) the role of my group was to to get them that information and then kind of support them in the struggle to make their voices heard. And... um, I had been attending community college in Pittsburgh, uh, which is roughly where I'm from. And so since I was going to come here to do that project, I transferred to OU at that time. And then I stayed here until 2009, um, almost 10 years to the day. And then uh, my wife and I moved back to Athens in 2016. So altogether, it's 15 years now. Okay. Um, and can you also like describe 
Des- I just used past tense. Um, can you also mm-hmm. describe some more like stuff that you have done in the community? Like you touched on, which it was really interesting to like learn that you came it to Athens initially to help like students in the local high schools. I never knew that. So, yeah, I mean, my my initial background is in student organizing. Um, you know, the first real organizing project I ever did was when I was a high school student myself, and I organized. Um, kind of a, a public access, democratically managed magazine, um, which then led to the organization that I described a few moments ago, which was called Free Student Press, which was, um, you know, we snuck around to do what we did at my high school <laughs> because we didn't know we had any legal protection because our school officials had lied to us and said we didn't. So um, when I learned that students, in fact, did have that legal protection, that was when I created that group. And so... Um, then, so I basically moved from peer organizing, doing high school student organizing as a high school student myself, to then facilitating high school student organizing as a college student, then doing campus organizing at OU and kind of community organizing from there. But, uh, but yeah, there's been a lot. Um, I mean, when I uh, was putting together my campaign website this year, I tried to have a section called my record where I at least did like a highlights reel and I never had time to finish it because I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been 25 years of just constant work. And so, um, yeah, it's a long list. Uh, I mean, I've kept track of the newspaper coverage of it. Over 250 news articles have been written about my work. It's been the subject of about a hundred pieces of my own writing. Um, so there's been a lot, but if you like, I could give some highlights. Um, yeah, that sounds good. What makes most sense, chronological or reverse chronological? Uh, you just you do however you feel. <laughs> well, you know, the reverse chronological would start with the present, and there's been a lot of attention to present stuff lately, so maybe I'll start <laughs> in the past. So I did mention that uh, the group Free Student Press, um, and really when when I launched that, there was almost immediately a big controversy that lasted four months where the administration of Nelsonville York High School was trying to uh, destroy a student publication called Lockdown. And um, through my organization's support of the Nelsonville York students, they ultimately were victorious. Their principal was forced to resign. Um, It was like a big controversy front page news for about four months. But from there, um, probably the next biggest highlight was uh, in 2002, um, I exposed OU, minute, OU administrators who were violating federal law for probably about five years in order to hide from students and employees campus sexual assault statistics, reporting procedures, and survivor support resources at a time when there were actually more rapes being reported in OU's dorms than at those of any other college or university in Ohio. OU, to sweep it under the rug, was actually violating uh, the Cleary Act, which is a federal law for not only reporting campus crime, but also making students and employees aware of how to report it and what resources there are, both in terms of crime prevention and survivor support. Um, so, uh, excuse oh, yeah, uh-huh. do, do you know, do you remember like exactly what that entailed? Because I'm, I'm kind of yeah. interested in that one because that's something that's still... Uh, still OU has a problem with to this day is being like one of the highest schools in Ohio, at least with 
sexual assault rate. Yeah, I mean, this is unfortunately a really sordid story that never got the media attention it should have. Um, basically because local media at the time, as well as the Columbus Dispatch, essentially refused to report on it, uh, refused to investigate it. But it all started in January of 2002 um, at the beginning of what was at that time uh, winter quarter before OU switched to semesters. There was a eight-day period where there were two rapes reported on campus and uh, one homophobic attack on a lesbian student. And so, you know, I was a member of student activist groups at the time, and we were all very frustrated that the messaging coming from the university in response to that was, well, people, quote unquote, you know, shouldn't walk alone at night, first of all, disregarding the fact that in all of these cases, it was women who were attacked, uh, apparently by men. And also um, that, you know, people should be careful not to drink too much. So we really interpreted it as victim blaming. And so a lot of people were dissatisfied with that, wanting to push back against that messaging. And so um, a group of us just started doing a little more research. And um, it was actually an Athens News article that mentioned the Clery Act and mentioned what its requirements were, namely that Every year, I believe it's October 1st is the deadline, um, any school receiving any federal funding is required to publish and distribute its annual campus security report, uh, which includes all the stats, all the, you know, the information that I mentioned earlier. And schools, at least at that time, I assume this is still the case, were required to either give every student and employee a copy of the full report or to send a notice with a link to where they could get the full report online and a postcard, you know, telling them where to find it. And we were like, wow, that's interesting. OU's never done any of that in any of the years that any of us have been enrolled here. Um, so it was very bizarre that the newspaper reported the requirement without investigating to see whether OU was in compliance with it. But we investigated that and uh, discovered that OU had been in violation and basically the issue of Clery Act compliance got wrapped into, you know, cultural issues of, you know, normalizing this violence and blaming victims and kind of pushing back against all of that. So student activists, myself included, we ultimately organized a 300-person student walkout that culminated in a rally on College Green that lasted for about two hours. It was an open mic rally. It attracted statewide media attention. And even though there was never adequate reporting of OU's Clery Act violations, the attention that that walkout attracted uh, ultimately forced OU into compliance with the Clery Act um, and was also instrumental in several other things. Uh, that year, the student Senate president, a woman named Catherine Smith, got administrators to commit to agree to establish a campus women's center. Uh, they agreed to set aside space for it in the new student center, which was being planned then uh, over at Park Place, but not located there yet. And um, in a video interview I did with Catherine Smith, she cited the walkout as being the pressure that was necessary to get OU officials to agree to establish the Women's Center that finally opened in 2007. Um, it was also part of the effort to... Um, 
create a full-time director's position for the OU LGBT Center. At that point in time, I think it was quarter time uh, that they only paid a single staff person. Um, it was part of the effort to abolish unconstitutional restrictions on campus speech and assembly because OU had tried to prevent the walkout rally from happening by threatening to arrest all the students involved for trespassing on their own campus. Well, as we know, they still try. <laughs> oh, yeah. Say, and as Baker we know, that 70. would culminate yeah, in 2017 with the Baker 70. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. These issues don't go away. I mean, mm -hmm. it's always this tug of war between student activists and administrators. I mean, we were able to abolish a lot of the unconstitutional restrictions gradually and for the most part by 2007. But yeah, 10 years later, they try to bring them all back. Yep. Um, but one of the things that was so horrible about all of this was in 2005, I believe it was, the Cleveland Plain Dealer ran an article about campus sexual assault and just in an infographic on the side listed the main public schools in Ohio and what their stats were. And it was like, wow, during that period when OU was violating the Cleary Act, OU had the highest number of rapes reported in its residence halls. And that was when it was violating the law to literally make it harder for people to report assault and yet it still had the highest numbers. So um, local media got a hold of that, and they said, wow, what do, what do administrators have to say about this? And administrators took it as an opportunity to pat themselves on the back. They said, being the worst means we're the best because we do the most to encourage students to report. It was just utterly shameless. Oh my God, that is <laughs> utterly, such a backward way Utterly thinking. shameless because, they had, because the reporting had never happened to hold them accountable. The, the, literally, the reporters who were reporting in 2005, you know, didn't even go back and look in their own newspaper's archives three years. And so, you know, literally, some of the people who were instrumental in OU's Cleary Act violations went on to put, list themselves as Cleary Act compliance specialists on their resumes after that. I mean, it was just, yeah, uh, beyond outrageous. But, uh, but yeah, so that was 2002. Um, what else did I do? <laughs> um, in 2003, um, I was one of the co-founders of a group called Interact, which for about three years was kind of the hub of progressive activism on campus. Um, it was very deliberately set up as a non-sectarian, kind of broadly progressive group from kind of liberal Democrats on over to leftist radicals. And um, we, uh, you know, were interested in dealing with the multiplicity of social justice issues. Um, so it was kind of a hub for a lot of different campus activism. And one of the, the main things that grew out of that was uh, the Interactivist Magazine, which lasted from, I think, 2003 until 2017, maybe. Um, at least in some form. I was uh, the editor-in-chief of it from 05 through the end of 08. But um, at its peak, it was uh, a monthly print magazine uh, published every month that OU was in regular session with a circulation of about 3,000 copies, up to 40, 50 pages long, uh, produced by an all-volunteer staff of uh, 30 people who were primarily OU students. And so it was kind of 
uh, it provided progressive commentary and also news coverage of progressive organizing, a calendar of events, kind of feature interviews with local activists. So it was uh, particularly from 05 to 08 under my direction, kind of a vehicle for both linking together progressive students and progressive community activists by having the students cover the community activists, giving them that publicity, and through doing that, gaining all of that journalism experience. And um, you know, in the three years that I was editor there, we helped develop about 100 uh, young journalists who, uh, some of them like uh, Eric Sandy, who's at Cleveland Scene, just you know, has won, I think, a couple more awards this year for his work. Um, a lot of folks came through that. And um, yeah, a bunch of other stuff too. <laughs> but that that at least goes back to 08. So to come back to, you know, closer to now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in 2019, you ran for mayor. Mm -hmm. It was, that was, oh my God, yeah, that was that two was... years ago. I know, Sorry, time I flies. Just, oh. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, uh, and we had you on this podcast back then to talk about that. Um, and you talked about how, correct me if I'm wrong, it was like low voter turnout and a lack of students participating in local elections that sort of holds this uh, like old Democrat, like how do they call it the blue wall or something like that in mm -hmm, Athens mm -hmm. firm. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of wanted to get your opinion on if you've changed your mind on that at all or if you still think that's the case. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's the case. And I actually just did some more research um, this past week looking at these latest election results. And I, I was actually shocked um, to the extent that the data actually supports my argument much more so than I even mm -hmm. expected it would. Um, and so, you know, here's kind of an example. Because, because, you know, my argument is, Oh, people like me would get elected if there was higher turnout, but that's a hard thing to prove, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that can mm -hmm. just be wishful thinking. But we do see that when there is higher turnout, there's a preference for more progressive candidates. So, uh, for instance, you know, here's what I dug up here. And, and I should say, at the moment, we can only compare the election night results of this month's election, which haven't yet been updated to include the early absentee ballots. Um, so they will change a little bit. In, in 2019, you know, I got 571 votes on election night, and then it ended up being 624 total after they were updated. I think my vote total increased by like 9%. Patterson's increased by 3%. But the bottom line is it's not going to impact these stats that I'm going to give you that much, it, not by more than a percentage point. So, okay. So in this last, well, let me back up a little bit because uh, this is going to go into the weeds, but I want to be as clear as I can. Um, low turnout made all the headlines this past week when the election results were reported. Um, but the figure that was quoted was that 27%, which is the countywide figure, and it's the percentage of voters who were registered countywide who showed up to vote. 
if you actually look at the precinct by precinct reports to get a citywide figure, you find that turnout within the city of Athens was substantially lower. It was 20% of registered voters. But even that overstates turnout because there were 3,000 fewer people registered to vote this election cycle than in 2019, than even the last city election. And there were 7,000 fewer people registered to vote in the city of Athens than there were in 2016, which was the last pre-pandemic presidential election. So if you really want to get a sense of just how low turnout is in the city, I think you have to try to get an estimate of what the number of eligible voters in the city are because registration changes so dramatically year to year too. So um, in January of this year, uh, Reuters estimated that in 2020, the nationwide voter registration rate was 86% of eligible voters. Um, so if we assume that that was also the case in 2016, more or less. And in 2016, there were 19,420 registered voters in the city of Athens. If we assume that that's 86% of the total number of eligible voters, we come up with a pretty good estimate, I think, of there being 22,139 eligible voters in the city of Athens. So of that 22,000 plus uh, eligible voters, only 2,457 people voted in this month's election. So as a percentage of eligible voters, turnout was only 11%, which means that the big winners got the support of all of 8% of eligible city voters. It's just such a tiny sliver of our local population that determines who runs our city. So, okay, so that's how low turnout is. Why do I think people like me would do better if we had higher turnout? Well, the last time we had turnout above 5,000 people in the city of Athens and there was a Democratic Socialist on the ballot, Athens city voters chose Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton nearly three to one. He got 74% of the Democratic primary vote um, compared to Clinton's 26. Now, we can also compare that to the 2020 election when turnout was almost half of that level and who was really taken out of the equation were students because OU was shut down because of the pandemic, so not even early voting during the month of April could happen for that primary on the part of students. Um, so instead of there being uh, 5,712 total voters in the 2016 primary election and 4,204 or I'm sorry, 4,243 of those voters voting in the Democratic primary. In 2020, turnout fell to just 2,697 total primary voters with 2,529 casting Democratic ballots. And that dramatic decline in turnout, particularly among students, had a visibly conservative impact on the results. Instead of Sanders winning with 74% uh, of the vote, Biden beat him by a single percentage point. Uh, Biden got 45% to Sanders 44. So, you know, if we look at this data, I really do think it supports the case that when we have higher turnout, particularly among students, it has a progressive impact on the results.
And so when you only have 11% of city voters turning out in a city election, and when you look precinct by precinct and see that the vast majority of those votes are coming from the city's wealthiest homeowner neighborhoods, that's where the support for the, I mean, I, I think it's even unfair to call it the blue wall because Democrat means something very specific in Athens city government that I think it doesn't necessarily mean uh, nationally or at the state level. But yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's why we have the policies that we have and the people that we have uh, creating those policies. Um, can you, ex um, I know you just mentioned like a lot of voters are coming from like the wealthier neighborhoods in Athens. What, where did you kind of get that conclusion just for mm -hmm. like our listeners? Well, so a good example, for instance, um, so I live in the fourth ward. Okay. And the fourth ward, I believe, has either four or five precincts that it's divided into. And that includes the homeowner neighborhoods between uh, Stimson and State, the Near East Side, okay. as well as the Mill Street neighborhoods, which are overwhelmingly students. So I am one of them. <laughs> yeah. So and I and I didn't look this close for the the twenty twenty one general election yet. But um, I did this back in 2019. It was similar. Uh, in the, the 2021 primary race, and granted, student turnout is lower in the primaries than it is in the general, but really not by that much sometimes. Um, the city's only competitive primary race was in the fourth ward. It was between 12-year incumbent Chris Fall and her challenger, Alan Swank. Uh, Alan Swank ultimately won by 30 points. But uh, turnout in the two Mill Street area student precincts was a total of one person. And those precincts are home to 1,100 currently registered voters. Who knows how many more eligible voters? And one person voted. So, and back in 2019, you know, some of the coverage took a closer look at the West Side, which is student renters and low-income city service workers primarily. And you know that's always where turnout's the lowest in the city, um, uh, ward-wide, as well as in particular precincts within it. So, so yeah, I mean, anytime I've looked at the data, it's, it's the neighborhoods. Um, I mean, and I talked about that one person in the Mill Street neighborhoods. You know, meanwhile, well, let me fix that. Uh, yeah, I mean, w we have other precincts in the city where turnout is like 40, 50 percent. Uh, it's just a huge difference. And those are in wealthy homeowner neighborhoods. That is, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> that is something peculiar that I've noticed about Athens elections, too, is there's always like one little anecdote from a student who like lives in River Park or whatever. And they were like, oh, the Board of Elections said there was one ballot that was uncounted from my district because it was like an absentee ballot and I know it was mine because I cast it. Yeah, well. And it's like, any could could you do that anywhere else? A anywhere else at all? Like, <laughs> I don't even know. It's wild. I mean, actually, I'm remembering that uh, the Post's election night blog, and I forget who the reporter was, but there was a reporter who was in uh, Ward 3, uh, Precinct 3. And um, she talked about how like, 
there was no line, like people were so happy to see her. And I believe the total was three people voted in that precinct in this election. Um, so, so her plus two other people, you know, all day long. I know just seeing like Baker, like the precinct that's in Baker for students to vote at, it never seems really busy. Mm-hmm. Like you'd expect it to be because it's so it's on campus. Like students don't need to worry about finding where it is, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, and frankly, this ties into why this, uh, the local Democratic establishment does not reach out to students, because it sees that when students vote, they vote for people to the left of the local Democratic establishment. Um, now, to me, one of the fascinating things about that is they do such an incredible disservice to their own party statewide and beyond. You know, usually we don't have... Uh, races for Congress the same time as races for city office. But because of Steve Stivers resigning, Mm -hmm. we had this unusual coincidence where there was a congressional race on the ballot uh, during what's usually just a city election year. And, you know, so, I mean, back in 2008, I briefly worked for what was ostensibly a nonpartisan electoral group that was trying to register more people to vote in college towns and promote early voting. In reality, it was an arm of the Obama campaign because everybody knows students overwhelmingly vote Democrat. So if you're boosting you know, turnout in a college town, you're boosting Democratic turnout. Okay, so why, don't, why did the Dems not reach out to students to boost turnout for Alison Russo? Um, you know, they uh, skipped you know, the uh, campus candidate forum that was open to all candidates that was to be held on September 30th that was literally scheduled around their stated availability, but all three Democratic candidates skip it. They only agree to participate in a forum weeks later after the registration deadline has passed to which the independent candidates are not invited to that forum and they don't advertise it. So the audience is literally the two moderators, two reporters, me and three of my supporters. You know, obviously there's no effort made to boost student turnout. And the thing is, is like, you know, if they had boosted student turnout or just turnout in general in an overwhelmingly democratic city like Athens, it would have helped Russo. Instead, you have the Democratic mayor trying to boost Republican turnout to defeat progressive city candidates. So, so they, they choose, you know, this kind of Democrat in name only city establishment over the balance of power between Republicans and Democrats statewide, and also the impact that you know OU graduates have on that balance of power, even beyond Ohio. I mean, you know, my argument is that, like, look, we have tens of thousands of young people coming through this, uh, you know, city every few years. Um, we know that when they vote, they overwhelmingly vote Democrat or for more progressive politicians. I mean, you know, I I understand the reality that in the vast majority of races, the most progressive viable candidate is going to be a Democrat. Um, So, uh, you know, by not engaging students in city politics, they don't develop a habit of young people participating in local politics. And we know that if young people did, they would be pushing back against the right. That would benefit the Democrats nationally, statewide, but it might not benefit them here. At least they seem to think it wouldn't. 
which I think is why they don't reach out to students. And I think they draw that conclusion looking at the same data that I do. So I wanted to go into something that you just mentioned about uh, the Athens mayor mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. specifically. There was uh, a, a controversy, I guess you could call it, uh, an incident, I guess, where uh, Mayor Steve Patterson was, I guess, leaked uh, by the press mm -hmm. as having went to this uh, lunch event with Republican politicians and at least from the tape seemed to be conspiring with them to stop yours and um, Iris Virgie. Iris Virgie, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. uh, their, your guys' campaign efforts uh, for city council. Mm -hmm. So what's kind of your perspective on that, I guess, as somebody that is chiefly involved in it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating on a number of levels because, I mean, uh, one thing is that it shows a lot about the mayor's character because he could have gone in there and made an honest argument. He could have said, look, this guy, Damon, this woman, Iris, they're to the left of me. That means I'm your lesser evil. I'm better by comparison. Vote for me. I mean, you know, I would have objected to that in other ways, but at least it would have been an honest argument. Instead, you know, he just went in there and regurgitated baseless far-right talking points. He tried to stoke their paranoia. You know, he claimed when they asked, like, well, what are this Damon Crane guy's policies? He could have told them my policy proposals and they probably wouldn't have liked them. But he said, oh, he doesn't even have any, you know, he's one of these clowns that if he got elected, he wouldn't know what to do. Um, so, you know, to me, that was really striking. He claimed I had never served on a city commission. That's not true. I was a member of the city council's ad hoc committee on mobile vending two years ago. Um, you know, he, he really just lied at every opportunity. But, you know, that was really an effort to stoke far-right paranoia about socialism. Um, and so, you know, that was really what he went for. Um, you know, other things that I think were interesting is that clearly there's a division among the Republican Party when it comes to Athens city politics. Uh, the uh, Pete Kalaitis, who's been chair of the Athens County Republican Party for 17 years, he was a big Patterson supporter two years ago. Um, he was, you know, who uh, Patterson arranged this meeting through. Uh, Kalaitis, you know, supports Patterson. But then you had other people there who saw it as an opportunity to embarrass Patterson, including Jay Edwards. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it shows that division among Republicans, too, where somebody like Kalaitis is more pragmatic, who says, yeah, Steve's my lesser evil, like, of course, and so is Sarah Grace, and so are all these Democrats. Um, but then you have, I think, some other Republicans who, who don't see it that way, who probably just aren't as pragmatic. So, I mean, I think there's so much to unpack about that audio. Um, it was really interesting. But, you know, I don't think it should have been as surprising as it was to a lot of people. I mean, so yeah. for, for me personally, at least as somebody who followed the 2019 election pretty closely and somebody who was following this one closely as well, um, it seemed to be like kind of the worst, uh, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, but I think I think it was like kind of the worst mistake that Patterson could have made because it, it was so opposite of his campaign strategy in 2019, which was basically just to pretend like you didn't exist mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For, for as long as he could. Like that and as well as this being like kind of in a public area, like the OUN 
people just go there for dinner. Yeah, it's not a... I like mean, lunch and dinner at that. <laughs> yeah. So it was a very public area, and it, I guess it should not have been surprising that, like, always Patterson shouldn't have been surprised that stuff like that got leaked because yeah. it wasn't a public area. Um, But, yeah, it is kind of interesting, like Bo said, looking back at how Patterson, like... Because public opinion of Patterson has, like, typically been good. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. He's... Yeah. Whenever I've had conversations with him, he's always been, like, really welcoming, and I feel like that's most people like that in a politician so um but yeah i i forgot where i was going with that well Uh, if (laughs) if i could interject one thing i mean if you know i think back to the last candidate forum um that steve and i participated in which which was on campus in 2019 the democrats didn't skip the campus forums like they did this year (laughs) um but uh i think he put his phone number up on the chalkboard and he said you know my door is always open and I tried to make the case in that very forum that I was like, look, like this isn't openness, this isn't responsiveness, because him saying that he'll essentially only talk with people privately means there's no public accountability. He can tell people whatever they want to hear, nobody can compare notes. And so, you know, really that's what we saw in this meeting with Republicans, where in the meeting with Republicans, you know, he sounds like a Trump supporter himself. You know, he's he's one of them. And that's obviously not the persona that he presents in meetings with progressives or when he's before city council. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that was always his strategy was I'm happy to talk to anyone as long as not everyone gets to hear it. I will say, like, I, I didn't go to council, I think, two weeks ago. It was the night before the election. Mm-hmm. And I was with Cole Barons, who's the associate editor at the Athens Institute. Had to figure out his position <laughs> for a second. Um, but when he went up to talk to uh, Mayor Patterson, like, Patterson was kind of like, I, I hate saying it because it's, kind of, it's like editorializing. <laughs> but he was a lot less welcoming and stuff and like willing to answer Cole's questions. And I asked him questions like immediately after. and He was different. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting to see and... Only because, like, this is just after Cole, like, found, like, was writing articles and having them published about, like, the GOP launching on, um, what was the other thing? Of, uh, Parks and Rec yeah, director, yeah, there was yeah. that as well. Well, um, the first council meeting after publicity of the leaked luncheon audio, you know, Patterson told Cole that Cole was going to have to submit all future yep. questions in writing because of inaccuracies. And of course, he can't name inaccuracies. And I mean, when, when you talk about the things going so wrong for Patterson with this audio leak, um, you know, his response to the Athens News was was just as bad. I mean, like, you know, not only is it like ethically and morally reprehensible, but it's just such bad strategy, right? Because like, like, who does he think he is trying to use access as a bargaining chip and to, like, punish the media? Like, one, he's not Trump. His base doesn't hate the media. Like, this is a journalism town. Like, you're, <laughs> he's not going to, like, win public sympathy by trying to punish Cole in the Athens News. Yeah, also, you know, there I... are two public newspapers. There <laughs> exactly. Are two. And... Cole works at both of them. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, Steve's I, not the Secretary of State. This isn't Washington, D.C. There aren't hundreds of reporters competing to scoop one another. Like, he can't do that. I will say, I... One of my roommates worked for the Dems, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, she, like, kind of... 
like when the Cole reports came out, she was like talking about how like Cole would go about like kind of trying to trip people up in questions and which I don't know if you've ever been interviewed by Cole or how recently. Oh yeah, <laughs> lots of times. Yeah. <laughs> I should have figured it. I'm sorry. Um but like he's he's just asking questions. No one's really trying to trip you up and it was kind of interesting to see cuz she's always been supportive of my work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But whenever like someone goes against like someone that I guess she's like kind of works for, like her public opinion of like journalism and like the whole like process of doing it has changed and i remember looking at her and i'm like no that's just he's not trying to trip people up he's just trying to inform people and stuff I think two cole, totally different things i think cole's interview style is a little bit more like aggressive it, i think it's honestly more conversational depending on who he talks to yeah yeah he's a people person i, I mean yeah. i i would say i mean i would generally describe Cole is aggressive. I mean, I think that's a good. I, I think that's a good thing. I, I mean, agree. I mean, yeah. as a reporter, I mean, he's he's cool. aggressive when interviewing me. He's aggressive when he's interviewing Patterson. Um, I, I like to see that. Um, but but yeah, uh, yeah. The the fact that Steve thought he could play it that way to his benefit was just astounding. I thought you know, and 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 it totally backfired on him. You know, he just got embarrassed more in the Athens News. Um, Corinne and I never know if Corinne's last name is Colbert or Colbert. I don't know I if either of you know. Colbert. Colbert. But she had that excellent, you know, editorial, just, you know, really taking him to task. Um, and, you know, and, and then he had to give in and start and go back to actually giving interviews again. So, yeah, it's been interesting the last month and a half. I think another thing, just to wrap, uh, wrap mm-hmm, the Patterson mm-hmm, thing up real mm-hmm. quick, um, that I thought was interesting about that particular event was that he kind of, Played, he overplayed his hand a little bit and revealed that he doesn't really think of student media as being real media, <laughs> yeah. which was kind of shocking to me. That was kind of jarring. Because, yeah, because he always has the, like, the friendly mayor face when we're interviewing him, when we interact with him. He's always um, been. There are, yeah. there are, there's a course here at the university where you go to city council and you report on it and that's the whole course and like there he's always so like compliant and very nice and now like looking back on it, it feels like i had he had the little kid gloves on when we were talking to him oh i which mean is you know that arrogant condescension is exactly like how he joined the republicans and demeaning iris vergie as you know a girl quote unquote and a bartender that was all they needed to know about her <sighs> And then like, oh, they're not journalists, they're students. I mean, I, I joke, and, and of course for me, the funny thing is like, um, according to Patterson, I have this, what, what was it, an ego bigger than this room. Um, and I, I just always joke that you would think a former psychology professor would understand the concept of projection uh, because obviously Steve is a very, very arrogant condescending person um and i mean i've i've just you know loved munching on my popcorn while i watch him self-destruct frankly correct me if i'm wrong you did do a little better in this last election correct for okay it seems like it at least uh uh, the election night totals i did better as of right now Mm -hmm. yeah um is there anything that you did differently this time around and like things that if you decide to run again that you would probably do different in the future Oh, yeah, definitely. So things that I did differently this time around is even going into this, I knew I wasn't going to be able to campaign as vigorously as I did in 2019. 
I didn't have as much money to spend. I didn't have as much time to spend. And there was only one other in, new independent in the race uh, versus two in 2019. And, and also, uh, you know, I had a feeling that Iris and I weren't going to work together as closely as Chris and Ellie and I did in 2019. So, you know, the fact that I ended up spending only one eighth of what I spent in 2019 um, that I wasn't able to uh, spend a lot of time registering new student voters, which Ellie and I did a lot of in 2019. I wasn't able to knock on as many doors as I did in 2019. Um, and uh, what was the other big thing I was going to mention? Um, oh, oh, in 2019, uh, Ellie and I also did the text banking to OU students. There was nothing like that this time around. And despite all of that, I got more votes than I got in 2019. And there were nearly 3,000 fewer people who cast votes this year in comparison to 2019. So, um, you know, of course I would have liked to have won. Um, I would have liked to have gained more ground than I did, but I am happy that I definitely did not lose any ground. I definitely still gained some. And if it wasn't for me running, you know, we never would have seen uh, Steve Patterson put himself in the situation he's in now. So I think that there was a lot of value in running. Um, and, and as a result, you know, I come away from this election and the organizations I work with, you know, the people who are politically aligned with me, we all come away from it with more leverage, more influence with regard to city policy than we ever had before, while our opponents, while still being the people who get elected, are in a weaker position than they've ever been in before. So, you know, I definitely consider that as progress. Um, but, you know, as far as what I would like to do differently in the future, it really, it, it really comes down to that turnout and the demographics of turnout. Um, and unless we see more students and non-student low-wage working-class folks who make up, you know, 80 to 90% of our community together, unless we see a higher percentage of them voting, um, you know, folks like, uh, like me, like Iris, like Ellie, like Chris, um, you know, I, I don't think there's any chance of us getting elected um, unless we can change that turnout. Now, what would it take to change that turnout? You know, more resources than we have at our disposal right now. I mean, one kind of benchmark I look at is Alan Swank, who prior to Ben Ziff and Micah McCary taking some very good issues, uh, primarily in response to the questionnaire from United Athens County tenants, back in May, Allen was by far the most progressive of the new Democrats. He was the only Democrat, and in fact, he still is the only Democrat, uh, to condemn the city for not carrying out its promised racial equity review to specifically condemn it for passing the new three-year police union contracts without conducting the promised racial equity review first. Um, and he was also one of the first people, uh, one of the first Democrats to come out in favor of banning source of income discrimination. He did all of that at uh, his candidate forum, the League of Women Voter candidate forum, with Chris Fall back on March 23rd. And um, Allen won by 30 points. You know, I, I considered that hugely encouraging. But Allen, he knocked on, uh, according to him, he knocked on 600 doors. He got 186 votes. So 
to have that same success rate, because he's just running in a little ward, right? A citywide candidate would need 2,000 votes to win. That means they've got to knock on 7,000 doors if they have the same success rate as Allen. But if you're trying to reach out to people who aren't frequent voters, students, low-wage workers, you're not going to have that high of a success rate. So, you know, you've got to knock on a lot more than just 7,000 doors, and that means... You know, that's not something volunteers can do in their spare time. You would need the campaign funding to actually pay uh, campaign organizers and canvassers. And so, you know, folks like me, we just don't have those resources at our disposal right now. If we did, you know, I think it would make a huge difference. Um, a little follow-up question to that. Mm -hmm. So there's like a few organizations like on campus. Um, I think it's the Athens County Youth Young Social Democrats. The uh, YDSA, the Young yeah, I said Democratic that wrong. Socialists oh my gosh! America. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Thank God you understood I like, what, what I was trying. <laughs> I said it wrong. Yep. Um, like, would you ever can like have you ever had any contact with them and like potentially, if you ran again, like working with them? Because I feel like the college Democrats all are working with the when they do with the county Democrats. Well, let me come oh, back to that because oh, that's okay. interesting. But but yes, uh, to your first question, <laughs> yes. Um, actually, why the OU chapter of YDSA endorsed me okay. um, in this race, and um, some of their folks uh, knocked on some doors for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I look forward to building a stronger relationship with them too because at the moment, um, at least as near as I can tell, and it's been harder to tell during the pandemic, but they seem to currently be probably the best organized progressive activist group on campus. Um, if you know of others, let me know, please. But um, So yeah, I, I would really like to develop a stronger relationship with them. Um, now, with the college Democrats, I think it is really interesting. Uh, back in 2019, um, I got to speak at one of their meetings about my campaign. And it was like a 50-50 split and very hmm. polarized. Like half of the room hated me, half of the room loved me. And um, it, the recent meeting where Patterson spoke, it was kind of a similar thing. You know, okay. there's, you know, a confrontation between me and the moderator. Uh, I get cut off. The meeting gets shut down. Steve runs away. And then, like, Iris and I just get mobbed by half of the attendees who just want to hear our take on everything. So even among the college Democrats, I think there really is a split between folks who, I mean, I think, frankly are trying to advance themselves through networking and ingratiating themselves to current city office holders who are Democrats. And then there are members who are more ideological Democrats, um, who are in favor of, uh, you know, at least more progressive policy than Steve Patterson represents. Um, so so I, I think that's interesting. Um, because even though I'm somebody who is to the left of the Democrats, um, I think it's even more noteworthy how far our local Democratic establishment is to the right of the Democrats nationally. That's fair. <laughs> um. Um, so do you have anything planned for the future as of right now? Well, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I tried to, even in my comments on the election results, kind of pivot back to my role as a community organizer. I mean, I had a lot of negative things to say about Ben Ziff and Micah McCary during the campaign, but 
the fact of the matter is, and, and I think those things were, were legitimate, um, you know, that's one side of the equation. The other side is that they did take some excellent positions. And so now it's up to folks like me to hold them accountable to those positions, um, particularly on housing policy. They came out in favor of a lot of really important policy reforms. And so now, you know, we just try to get them to introduce legislation that reflects those positions. And, you know, that can happen one of two ways. Folks like me can be their allies, helping them in that process, or we can be applying pressure on them and calling them out for like, hey, you said this, so it's time to make good on your campaign promise. It can happen either way, but you know that's how I plan on moving forward, um, because you know Ben and Micah do represent a lot of important progress for our city, um, not only in how they've changed the demographics of council, but also in terms of a lot of the positions they've taken. So um, I think there's a lot to work with in that respect too. And and of course, you know, I plan to to run again in the future. I was very happy to hear that Iris plans to run again in the future. But um, there's certainly a lot of opportunity to move city policy in a better direction between now and the ele next election. Okay, so you touched a little bit on earlier, because like you said, Ohio University makes up, and their students, makes up a big proportion of Athens Lake population, at least for most of the year. Um, and you talked a little bit how in the 2019 campaign at you and Ellie Hamrick, right? Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm would reach out to students like through text message form. Um, has there been any other, like, I guess, plans to engage more with students to try to encourage them to vote? Yeah, I mean, and again, I think this is, this is very telling in contrast to what the Democrats do. Ellie and I were the first people to, and I think as of now still the only people, to ever, the only candidates for city office, to ever text students with information on how to register to vote in a city election. Um, in 2019, and again this year, I was the only candidate to reach out to student groups to encourage them to hold uh, candidate forums on campus where students could grill candidates uh, on student issues. That's the only reason we had any campus candidate forums mm -hmm. in 2019 and in 2021. Um, you know, this time around, I was the only candidate to be endorsed by a student columnist. Um, I think that was the case in 2019 as well. Um, the only candidate to be endorsed by a student organization, uh, YDSA, because I, I don't think the OU College Dems do endorsements, but I could be wrong. Um, you'd have to check that. But to my knowledge, um, I'm the only student to be, I'm sorry, the only candidate to be endorsed <laughs> by a student group. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, any way that folks like me can reach out to students, we really need to. And, and it's not even just a strategic thing. Like, yes, students are the biggest group of progressive voters in the city. Um, but they're also just the biggest group of anything in the city. I mean, you can't, like when I, when I ran in 2019, um, a friend of mine who used to be on city council and who I did campus organizing with, um, you know, he was like, you shouldn't focus on students too much because they've never decided an election in Athens. And, and that was very well-meaning advice and he's right. But, you know, at the same time, I was like, if I have any commitment to democracy, like I don't get to ignore 80% of the city population. Like, of course that should be my primary focus. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I've, and folks like me need to think of new ways to reach out to students um, <laughs> if we're going to increase student turnout, but I, I think that's what it's all about. Is there anything else you want to add before we end? Um, I think we talked about a lot of stuff. Um, this will be our longest episode. Too, right? <laughs> oh yeah, by by a pretty significant margin. This I will season say. and how maybe today? How long was Athens Happens like really in the school year 2019, 2020? I don't remember it being that long. Like I have no idea. <laughs> maybe the longest episode ever. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and that's why, like, of all the lies. Mayor Patterson has ever told my favorite was when he said that like I didn't have any policy proposals because as everyone knows I'm the king of TMI like of course like <laughs> I talk your ears off of course like you can't get me to shut up about city policy um so yeah I thought that one was pretty funny um but yeah no I mean unless you all have any other questions that's pretty good oh wait yeah I do oh okay I'm gonna, nice. I'm gonna make Excellent. this episode even longer um, <laughs> hey I can stay as long as you want so so I know that you used to own a baked potato truck correct uh -huh. Uh -huh. okay how do you feel about like the recent like incre proposed increase in regulations on vending businesses in Athens because you had yeah at least at the meetings I've been to or what I've seen you haven't been there to really voice your opinion well okay so I really would have liked to have spoken at this last one I didn't pay close enough attention to the meeting agendas. I assumed it wouldn't be up for third reading until the following week because that's what I thought too. Because, so, and and this just illustrates like that lack of transparency and accessibility. If you go to the city website, it says that the first and third Monday of each month are the regular session council mm -hmm. meetings at which ordinances are read and voted upon. Yes, and the second and fourth are the committee meetings where things are just discussed and formulated. Okay. Council just throws that out of the window, and every once in a while they just decide to vote on stuff. Like, and you don't even know about it unless you're paying very close attention to the agendas. In my experience, you know, sometimes they haven't even been posted until a few hours before the meeting. Um, so, so yeah, had it not been for that, I would have spoken at this last meeting. So, okay, so uh, in 2018, um, I organized the Athens Mobile Vending Association. And then uh, it came to represent 14 different local small businesses. Uh, the membership elected me president of the organization. And um, we tried to get the city to change vending policy. Um, in response to our efforts, Sam Crowell formed uh, city council's ad hoc committee on mobile vending. And our argument was that the whole idea of mobile vending is that vendors move with the crowds. This area across the street from us, uh, in front of College Green on East Union Street, is where vendors have been since the 1970s. And for 30 years, those spots supported uh, mobile vending because the student center mm -hmm. used to be right across the street. Um, late night bar crowds used to be more in this area than concentrated all at the north end of Court Street. Uh, OU used to have a quarter system rather than a semester system, which meant that uh, you had the whole month of May as part of the regular school year, which mm. was the busiest month for vendors. So as a result of the student center moving to the other side of College Green to Park Place, uh, I mean, and I should say the student center was so important because, I mean, and this is 
I'll show my age, but you know, when I went to school here in the early 2000s, in warm weather, College Green looked like a beach. It was <laughs> packed wall to wall with people sunbathing, playing frisbee, listening to music, studying, talking on blankets, and eating lots of food from the mobile vendors. <laughs> and then in the wintertime, uh, the front room, the original front room, was the essentially the indoor dining room for all the vendors. You would get your burrito or your falafel from Alibaba's and you'd take it into the front room and hang out with <sighs> your friends and eat there. So when the student center moved away in 2007, it took all of those crowds, both warm weather and cold weather crowds with it. Then in, uh, let's see, 2012 was when the change from semesters or quarters to semesters took away the month of May. Then in 2013, when Mayor Patterson uh, was in his previous role as a council member, he authored changes to the mobile vending ordinance that essentially took away reserved nighttime vending spots. And nighttime had been most of the business, particularly on the weekends, for vendors. So the way those spots have worked since Prior to 2013, if you were a vendor, you rented a spot, you were the only one who could park in it round the clock. After 2013, you were the only one who could park in your reserve spot until 4 p.m. Then it went up for grabs. You could be there, but so could anybody else. So because of the waning business as a result of the student center moving, as a result of the bar crowds moving, as a result of losing the month of May, vendors needed to supplement their income by trying to do dinner events elsewhere, like at breweries or what have you. And then they'd come back to try to do late night and somebody would be in their spot. So their customers then couldn't count on them being there or not. And particularly if most of their customers were three blocks away, they weren't going to walk three blocks for a buggy that may or may not be there. So it destroyed the customer base for mobile vendors. So by the time of 2018, we were like, look, like, these spots that worked for all these decades just don't work anymore. And we don't want free range vending. We don't want access to any spot, but we want some new reserved vending spots that are closer to the late night crowds. Why don't you open up some spots around Domino's on Mill and State where, you know, on one side it's Mill, on one side it's State mm -hmm. around Domino's where <laughs> near the intersection with Court Street because that's where you put the vendors for Halloween. And why don't you open up some spots closer to the current Baker Center since proximity to the old Baker was so essential to mobile vending? And we said, look, like, if you don't make these changes, we can't afford to operate in Athens anymore. We'll go out of business. And they said, yeah, fine, that's great. And so they rejected our proposal. And now all 14 members of that association in 2018 either have gone out of business moved away from Athens, or stopped operating in uptown Athens. Mm -hmm. So that's the context in which somebody like James, and I don't know if his last name is pronounced Wanky or Wang. I, I should ask him. him. I've had conversations with I've him. Heard, I heard him say it when I was at that council meeting that he spoke out a couple of weeks ago and like protest of it. And I can't remember what it was. I'm so sorry. I always just say wonk. I was going to say, we had, we had a conversation. We, me and you had a conversation about how to pronounce the name, but I couldn't remember what it was I'm pretty either. sure I just say I. Well, if you all find the correct one, you can do a little voiceover. Like, I'll be like, James, wonk. Um, but, Not but, the first time you've had to edit my <laughs> but, but, you know, this is the context in which he's having his fight with the city, right? Because mm -hmm. he's got two issues. One, 
he's longer than the maximum size limit. Yep. And the other issue is, is that there's no way to operate a viable mobile vending business unless he's closer to the late, late night crowds where he's not allowed to be. Now, uh, when it comes to him setting up... Outside uh, of Casa on the weekends. Which, which is not sustainable, right? Because, I mean, and I could get into this, but like, uh, I know some folks at Casa are upset because in order for him to save those spots so that they're available when he comes with his vending unit, he has to have other vehicles hold their place. And so that takes away some customer parking when okay. Casa actually is serving. That's exactly what I used to have to do after 4 p.m. in these spots. Mm -hmm. I'd have to shuffle cars and all of that in order to, to keep my spot available. So, and, and of course, I understand why folks at Casa are upset about that. What he's doing isn't sustainable, but I think, and I think, I suspect James realizes that he's just trying to protest, draw attention to, ideally change the current law um, so that there are new reservable vending spots opened up in that general area. Um, but uh, when it comes to his approach, I mean, I'm pretty sympathetic because, you know, all 14 businesses that played by the rules and went through the proper channels in 2018, you know, we got nowhere except out of work. Um, so yeah, I don't blame James for challenging the city more aggressively. When it comes to the length of his vehicle, if we had free range vending where mobile vendors could set up shop in any open parking spot, then it would make sense for the city to limit the length of a vending vehicle so that it fits in any spot. Mm -hmm. But if the city is going to have reservable spots, I don't see any harm in the city just charging a vendor twice as much to rent two spots instead of one, as long as there's a sufficient number of total spots. So yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate situation, but I mean, that was what I started. I mean, that's what got me going to city council meetings initially. Um, when I ran for mayor, you know, I, I focused on things that I felt like had more substantial impact to more people. Uh, particularly, you know, rental housing safety stuff in a city where roughly 80% of the population resides in rental properties, um, you know, or students' rights where 80% of the population are students. But, you know, the way that the city has handled mobile vending is that, you know, it, it didn't just cause hardship for a lot of uh, families, you know, who had essentially put out a business. It diminished our city's nationally renowned food and beverage scene. It therefore diminished our ability to attract tourism dollars. It increases local economic inequality because, I mean, and, you know, we're one of the poorest counties in the state, uh, also, you know, the most income unequal county in the state. And what doing away with mobile vending on public streets does is it forces uh, would-be food startups to rent brick-and-mortar restaurant space, which is owned by the mayor's donors. Um, and even ubiquitous chain stores can't afford those rents. We have this revolving door of restaurants going in on Court Street, finding out that they can't make the rent, they go out of business, and then the landlord just gets to exploit the next poor sucker in line. It's an incredibly you know, predatory situation, but you know, it's causing substantial harm to our local economy, but it's also exacerbating local economic inequality because you're not giving a chance for small businesses to get their foot in the door, build an establishment, um, 
you know, we just have this revolving door of chain store franchises going out of business. And the only ones that that's benefiting are the commercial landlords who are some of the wealthiest people in our city. So it all ties back together. All right. I think that's about it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Always happy to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And that's a wrap for this episode of Athens Happens. Make sure to check out thenewpolitical.com for podcast episodes and other content. Thank you. And until next time.